I'm gonna walk us through. See, what this is is that we are just putting definition on a model that already currently exists, and this is what it looks like. We have, number one, we have discover. Discover is, is you learning through being in sermon, or being at the, in a worship service, listening to a sermon, being in life group, going through a Bible study. It's you knowing and learning who God is and then who you are in relationship to God. And then we have belong. Belong is being a part of a community, being a part of a life group, being a part of a group of people who are going to hold you accountable for, for what you do. And then we have serve. Serve is the part where you understand what your spiritual gifts are, and so it's time to put those into practice. And those gifts could be serving here at the church or serving in places outside of the church. And then we have go, which is missions evangelism. And so we're going we're gonna to be talking about these over the next few weeks. Uh, Jerry, uh, next week, will preach on discover, and then we'll go through belong, serve, and go. And so this morning, I plan to give us an overview, a biblical uh, overview of what the model that we see here in the book of Acts chapter 2. So why is this important? Because we don't want anyone who walks in these doors to get lost in the shuffle. We don't want anyone who comes here looking to be discipled leave disappointed because we weren't ready to ask the question, what is a disciple? So that's what we're going to do. That's what, that's what James and, and us have been working so hard on recently. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Here in the book of Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, please jump to Acts chapter 2. And our main idea this morning, if you're taking notes, our main idea is that United Community exemplifies a Spirit-filled church. United Community exemplifies a Spirit-filled church. So we have Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke is a, or was a physician at this time, and he was explaining to us what the first church body, this is what they first looked like, and this was a spirit-filled church. He's explained to us what they did in light of Pentecost. Now, some of you are sitting here, you're probably wondering what Pentecost is. Well, if we remember, if we go back in the Gospels, we know that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. And to that, as a church, we say, amen, Right? He rose again on the third day. And after he rose again, he spent some time with his disciples. And he told them, we see this in Acts chapter 1. He told them that I'm going to leave and I'm going to send you a helper. And the helper is the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is going to give you power to be my witnesses into all the world. world. That's what he says. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 1. At the very beginning of Acts chapter 2, we have Pentecost. What Pentecost was, was this moment where the Holy Spirit descended down and, and came into the hearts of all the believers, all those who are following Jesus. The Holy Spirit now came down and he was very active and apparent in the hearts of those who followed Jesus. And it changed everything. And we see the power displaying itself through Peter. Peter in Acts chapter two, earlier in this chapter that we're gonna be in, gives this monster sermon. It is a monster sermon. And at the end, at the end of that, that sermon, it tells us that three Thousand people came to Christ because of it. Three thousand. And that's in Acts 2, verse 41. We find ourselves in Acts 2, verse 42, and that's where we're going to begin. So he's telling us what the church body looked like right after Pentecost, right after the Holy Spirit did his thing, and over 3,000 people came to Christ. So he's explained to us also what their discipleship process looked like what their community was like. So why I chose United Community? 
Well, the reason I chose that is because this passage is more than just telling us what Christians did together. As a matter of fact, in most of our modern English translations, there's a phrase, there's a Greek phrase. By the way, there's some Greek in here. I went like all nerdy Greek this week in my sermon prep. So I'm going to be throwing out some Greek to you guys. But in this passage, there's a Greek word in most of our modern translations that we don't have. And it's a big Greek word. I'm talking like if you look it up, it's like this long. And it's one that we miss. If you have a King James Version Bible or a New King James, you'll see this phrase. In the, pa- in, the, in the passage where it says, and day by day they went to the temple together. If you have a modern translation, it's missing a little phrase. But that phrase is that they were of one mind or of one accord. That's what the Greek says. And I don't want to gloss over this. I don't want to skip over this because what we need to know is that this early Christian model, in what they did together, they were united in what they did together. There wasn't division amongst them. They weren't doing it for the sake of doing it, even if they disagreed. They were doing it with one mind, with one accord. They were doing it together. I can't, I can't skip over that. We can't miss that. So it's united community. Unity is vital. We have to understand that unity also is the means in which they did what they did. Everything they did, they did it in unity. It was the means. And so this morning we're going to talk about what they did and how they did it. So there are four characteristics of a spirit-filled church. Also, I need to explain to you something too. When I say church, I don't mean this building. By church, I mean the believers. Believers who are in Christ, we are the church. And that's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that this is a spirit-filled room. I'm saying it's a spirit-filled body, spirit-filled people. First characteristic of a spirit-filled church is that it is a learning church. A spirit-filled church is a learning church. If we look in verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now, what we need to understand is that the apostles' teachings were more than likely the teachings that Jesus taught them. You see, in Matthew 28, we have uh, the Great Commission. And in that passage, Jesus tells them to teach, teach the people all that I have taught you. So this is a response to that. The disciples were now keeping their end of the bargain and they were teaching all that Jesus taught them and commanded them. The disciples were were the guardians of this message and they wrote these down to later form what we have, which is our gospels. They were the guardians. They're the ones who continued to pass this along. The word devoted in most of our Bibles is in the past tense. But if you look at the Greek, which I did, It's in the imperfect tense, which means it should actually read that they were continuously devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. Why is this important? Because it wasn't just some one-time thing that they learned and then they moved on with the rest of their life. It was something that every day they continued to apply, they continued to relearn, they had to continue to back it up every single day they learned and they kept learning and they kept learning. It wasn't something that that you took a test and then you were done with it, right? We've all taken a test in high school, most likely it was a math class, and we learned how to do the Pythagorean theorem and we passed on the test and we forgot how to do it after that, right? Yes, but it's not that. It is something that they were continuously learning. They continued to put it into practice. It was ongoing. And the reality is is that we can't devote ourselves to the Word of God unless we are willing to submit to the Word of God. John Stott says this, The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. Why is it more than knowledge? Well, it's because 
knowledge without application is in vain. Take this for instance. I grew up, I played a lot of sports. Um, I played basketball, football, and baseball growing up. But when I was seven, I decided to do something different. I decided to play soccer. Now, I don't like soccer. I'm just going to say it. But I thought that I would try it just for fun. So during my one season of AYSO soccer, and it was one, I was quickly done with soccer, they taught me how to pass. They taught me how to, how to properly kick the soccer ball. I was even goalie for a game. And I was bored out of my mind. But I was even goalie for a game, right? I did these things, but it was just for one season. So if I were to say that at seven years old, I learned these different things about soccer, and let's say Montreat College's soccer team was out in the park playing right now, and I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to go jump into the game. Do you think I'm going to be at all competitive? <laughs> I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say no. If you, think, if you think yes, you should have saw me run that 5K yesterday. It wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't be. Why? Because I learned it at a young age. I never applied it after that. And now I've forgotten everything. There's no muscle memory. There's nothing that I have that can make me competitive at the sport of soccer. Now, however, I played baseball for 17 years. And I learned the fundamentals as a young age. But every practice that I had from elementary school to middle school to high school to eventually college, I was having to relearn the fundamentals every single day. We would have different bunt defenses and different things, different shifts going on. But if I didn't know how to field a ground ball, I wasn't going to be successful. That's a fundamental thing of baseball. If I didn't know how to hold a baseball bat, I don't think I was going to be very successful. These are fundamentals that I had to continue to learn and it wasn't a couple months ago, Adrian and I went out, in the, went out in, the, in, the, in the driveway out here and decided, he's like, hey, let's just throw a baseball. And I, and I almost put it at his chest every single time. Why? Because for 17 years of my life, I applied the fundamentals of baseball. And I got better. I made it my job to improve at what I was doing, to take care of my craft and to get better. It wasn't a one-time thing and then it was over. I continued to apply it. I continued to work on it. Therefore, I grew in it. So what am I getting at? Well, if I would have never applied the truths of God to my life, then I would never grow. Some of you are sitting in here this morning and you've grown up in the church and you know the stories. You've heard sermon after sermon. You've sang worship song after worship song. You've been in Bible study after Bible study. And yet the truths that you learned, you've not applied. And so you sit here and you're wondering, why am I so far from God? It's because it was learned, but it was never applied. That's the reality. We have to know this, that as Christians, it is our calling to continue to grow. Discipleship is not destination-oriented. It is directionally oriented. Discipleship is not destination oriented. It is directionally oriented. What does that mean? There's not a finish line to where you can get to and say, I'm done. Yesterday, I ran the, the Journey to the Cross 5K. I knew where the finish line was. And I was praising God when I passed it. Like that was it. 
right? But I got there. I, I eventually got there and then I was finished. Now I don't ever have to run again, right? That's how I feel. But no, discipleship is not that way. Discipleship is directionally oriented. That means that I'm gonna start here and my goal is to get closer to Jesus knowing that I'm not gonna get there, but my goal is to continue moving this way. It's directionally oriented. It's not destination oriented. A spirit-filled church is not just a learning church, but it is also a loving church. Spirit-filled church is not just a learning church, it is a loving church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So not only were they devoting themselves to teaching, they were devoting themselves to fellowship. Now, I want to I go ahead and get this out there. Fellowship is not just when you and a group of people go bowling together. Or when you and a group of people go out to dinner together. And you're like, oh man, the fellowship was so good. So again, I'm going to pull some Greek out. Get ready for it. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And this type of fellowship has to include intimacy. There's something deeper. There's something, there's something much, 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 much deeper happening in this type of fellowship. It has to have some kind of closeness or some kind of oneness. And it has to be in terms of vulnerability. This is the type of fellowship that we share with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 1 John 1, 3 says this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a deeper fellowship. It's an intimate one. It's a oneness or a closeness together. Not only that, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Many scholars argue over what this is. I think there is no doubt that he's talking about the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about the Lord's Supper because this is something that they would do in their homes. This is not something that they would have done in the temple because this was strictly a Christ follower thing. This was not a Jewish tradition. So they would, they would take the Lord's Supper in their homes, go from home to home to home as these, as these new Christians would break bread together, taking part in the Lord's Supper. See, this was also part of the teaching that Jesus taught the apostles. It was not too long ago that Jesus was sitting at the table with his disciples the night before he was crucified and told them as he broke the bread that this is my body that will be broken for you. And this is the wine and this represents my blood which will be shed for you. I want you to eat this and when you do, I want you to remember me. This was part of the teaching See, the Lord's Supper is not just doctrine, it was a command by Jesus. So it was something that they were doing in their homes in light of what the apostles were teaching them and what they realized is that how much fellowship was brought through this. Together they were remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And they were having true fellowship with one another. Verses 44 and 45 say this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now it says that, and all who believed were together, I think it would be a stretch to think that all 3,000 of these new believers were in the same house. They were not. Actually, they were separated. They were separated into companies or smaller congregations according to their language, their nation, or other associations. And what this did is that they found themselves being small in number, that they were having to be together as Christ's followers 
just them as they were having to figure out what to do in this world. And so their mutual love for each other grew so much because they were of one mind, they were of one accord, and they were doing these things together. In verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, they were sharing what they had with each other. They were living in this communal society, and there's a sense of spiritual unity expressed itself in communal living. There were those among them who had needs, and there were those among them who could supply those needs. That's the reality of what was happening here. You see, the book of Acts tends to push persecution closer, probably four or five chapters down the line, but there was without a doubt that there were social and economic sanctions that were coming down on the followers of Jesus even now. There was persecution happening. Christians were being persecuted, therefore a need to have someone with them at all times. They were sharing with each other. They were helping each other out. Poor Christians needed financial help. Christians who needed emotional support. Christians who needed spiritual guidance. So I've shared this, this illustration before and I've preached, but I'm going to say it again because I, I feel like that this, this fits um, this part of the sermon. As a student at Montreat, after my freshman year, um, I went home for the summer and uh, tuition at Montreat increased that summer. And it was looking like I was probably $5,000 short of going back to Montreat. And I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be able to go back. $5,000 is a lot of money. Well, I, w- I had this woe is me mentality. Like, oh, poor Alan Michael. He doesn't get to pursue his education. And I called my coach. I called my friends. I called my teammates and told them, that, hey, it's, it's, not, it's looking like I'm not coming back, guys. Financially, I just can't afford it. I was already preparing my mind as I began to search for jobs to work close to home and help my parents out in any way that I could. That, that, that was my goal. That's what I was going to do now. Well, I got a call two weeks before student move-in from a guy who played soccer at Montreat. And he asked me, he said, Alan Michael, man, how are you doing? And I was like, man, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not doing too good. And this is why I'm struggling. Financially, I'm not going to be able to come back to Montreat. And um, it's looking like I'm not going to be able to finish my education. I was dead set on being in ministry, and it looks like my dreams have come to a halt. And he said, you know what, this is why I'm calling He said, I've been talking to my parents, and they want to provide the gap that's there. And I was like, whoa. And I told him, I said, you do know this is $5,000. This is not like, you know, $100 or or, or whatever. This is $5,000. I've never met your parents. They've never met me. Why would they help me? And he said that they just wanted to help someone who was eventually going to be in ministry. You're a friend of mine, and they just wanted to help. And, oh gosh, I remember it was at night, and I went into my backyard, and I fell on my knees, and I just began weeping. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And so I told him, I said, thank you isn't enough. Like, and I told him, I said, after I, after I graduate, I'll pay you back, whatever it takes. He goes, no, we don't want your money. We don't want it. What I had was a financial need. It was a financial burden. Was it something that I could have lived without? Yeah, it is. But they put their money towards something, and they didn't want a reward. They just wanted to help. They just wanted to help. And some of you are sitting in here, and you have a financial need. Some of you are sitting in here, and you have 
emotional needs. You might be sitting in this room and you're dealing with a separation of your marriage. And it's tearing you apart. You might be struggling with ghosts that are coming from your past. You don't know how to handle these. Let me tell you something. You do not have to go through this alone. There's many of you in here who who have spiritual needs. You're looking for spiritual guidance. You hear these things, you hear these truths, but you don't know exactly what to do with them. And so you need guidance. I'm so convinced that there are many sitting in this room who do not understand what grace is. And so when you sin, you beat yourself up and you tear yourself down because you don't understand what God's grace looks like. You don't have to go through this alone. Period. Spirit-filled church is a loving church. But what do I do? One easy on-ramp for you guys is to be in a life group. To be in a life group. To join a group. And when you join that group, you have to share with that group. You can't sit in a corner and just listen. You have to share. You have to open up. Nobody can help you if they don't know what it is. And if you're in this room and you're a life group leader, you've got to make space for this. You've got to create space for people to open up and share because you'll never know what's going on in their heart if they never share. A spirit-filled church is a loving church and we're called to help each other. A spirit-filled church is also a worshiping church. A spirit-filled church is a worshiping church And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Here's that language again. Day by day. Every single day, they were attending the temple. And this is the passage where we see that they were of one mind. They were of one accord. And in this, through this, they were attending the temple together not out of obligation, but it says in this passage because of their glad and generous hearts. They had one idea when they were there and that was to worship, period. When they were together in this place, they wanted to worship and they worshiped with pure joy. Guys, that's how worship should be, with joy. Now I know we got youth and we got some kids in the room. I bet at some point, you were made to come to church, right? Maybe it was this morning. Your parents were yelling at you to get out of the bed, get in the shower, get your corduroys and khaki pants on. That's what my mom always said. And, and get in the car because we're going to church, right? You're made to go to church. And many of you may have grown up that way too. That's how I was, that's how I was raised. I was forced. Doors were open. Now Michael's front row. There he is. You need to hear. You need to hear what the preacher says this morning. That's how it was. But let me tell you something. Being forced to come to church might make those not want to come to church. What if, what if going to church was not an obligation, but it was an opportunity to worship God? What if, instead of something where we teach our kids this is what you have to do, it was a chance to be among believers and worship the one who created everything? This is a chance and opportunity 
for us to, to give our praise, to give our thanks to the one who created you and breathed life into you. What if? The early church was a, was a group of brand new believers that just literally accepted Christ the night before, essentially. But they were going to the temple. Now, going to the temple was actually a Jewish tradition. This was not something specifically for Christ's followers. It's something that they always did. And when they would go there, what they would do is they would provide a sacrifice to be laid on the altar to atone for their sins. And this sacrifice would be killed and then their sins would be forgiven. Now, this sacrifice was something that was innocent. It was spotless. It was perfect. It was worthy enough to be sacrificed to God. But at this point, going into the temple, that's not what they did anymore. They didn't sacrifice anymore. You want to know why? Because Jesus taught them that he was the perfect spotless lamb of God who come to take away the sins of the world. He is the only worthy sacrifice, worthy enough to take all of our sins on his own shoulders. And that's exactly what he did when he was on the cross. He was the perfect lamb that was slain for every sin that you've committed, every sin that I've committed, and every sin that we will commit. That's what he did. And he was the only worthy sacrifice to cross the bridge to reconcile you back to the Father. No animal was going to be able to do that anymore. No animal could do that. He was the only one. He was the only perfect, righteous one to be able to do that. And he is so worthy of our worship. And that's what they did. They worshiped with joy, with gladness. John Popper talks about inward worship and an outward expression of worship. Matthew 15, 8 and 9 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. You see, inward worship is something that must be happening. There has to be an inward worship going on in our hearts. And so you're probably wondering, what is inward worship? Inward worship is when you set your hearts on the things that are above, not the things that are on this earth. It's when you set your mind on the kingdom of God, not on the kingdom of earth. That's inward worship. But then through that should be an outward expression of worship. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Outward expressions of worship. Part of that is, is how you act in this very room. Are you engaged with the music? Are you engaged with the sermon? What about at home? Are you displaying the gospel at home? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to go home and you only listen to Casting Crowns and Hillsong Worship. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when you are completely gripped by the gospel, then an outward expression of worship will come naturally. It will. An outward expression of worship without inward worship is in vain, and an inward worship without an outward expression is fruitless. Characteristic number four, a spirit-filled church is an evangelistic church. Spirit-filled church is an evangelistic church. In verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the church here, they were not too preoccupied with learning, sharing, and worshiping that they weren't there to be able to witness. 
They weren't too preoccupied with these other things. It was in their DNA. It was in their blood to do so. It wasn't just a once a year Easter outreach where we get all the people together, we pep them up and we send them out. It was a lifestyle. It was in their DNA. It's who they were and they did it together and they evangelized. And so God continued to add to their number day by day. God blessed their endeavors by adding to the church. You see, here's the reality. It's God's work to add souls. It's God's work to save. This is a great comfort to to people who are in the ministry and to Christians. God was continuously adding as day by day they were continuously learning, they were continuously loving, they were continuously worshiping, and they were continuously evangelizing. So he was continuously adding. See, one of our biggest worries in the church is evangelism. We're so worried that we're not going to know what to say. And in the heat of not knowing what to say, we're going to say the wrong thing, right? What if I mess it up? What if someone don't come to church or they don't receive Christ because I failed? Well, let me tell you this. God is the one who saves, not you. It's the work of God, not the work of man. I should give you comfort to know he's the one at work, not you. Jerry preached about this last week, but we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to witness. That's what God gave us, to to, to have the power to witness. And here's what you need to know, too. Scripture doesn't say that you have to defend these deep theological concepts. You don't have to know what transubstantiation is to be able to witness to somebody. You don't. That's, that's the reality. I know, I know that seems funny, but you don't. Here's what you have. You have one message. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you're in here and you're a Christian, you have a testimony to where you can say what he did for you. That's your story. That's your message. He took me, a sinner, who was only prideful and only loving about his own ways, doing what he wanted to do. I had my goal. I had my light at the end of the tunnel, and that's what I wanted. And he had so different plans for me. And in the midst of my wanting to, 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 to find my goal, I was living in this, in this, in this sinful pride and this arrogance that that's where, that was, was, was surrounding me. That was what exuded off of me. People actually told me in high school that they didn't want to be around me because I exuded so much arrogance. And then I went to a youth conference in Gatlinburg called Hearts on Fire. And this dude... He looked like a biker. He had this long gray beard, had a leather vest on, and a, and a flame bandana. I can't make this up. I can't remember his name, but I know he was from the Middle East, and he was preaching the gospel to me. And, you know, at the, at the end of worship services, he, he, you know, they'll say, if everyone bow their heads, everyone close their eyes, and if you pray this prayer, everyone raise their hands, but nobody's going to know that you raised your hands. No, this wasn't this guy. This guy said, I'm not going to do that. Because if you're going to make a decision for Christ today, then you're going to do it in front of everybody. And so he said, I'm going to pray in just a second. Then when I get through praying, if you prayed that prayer, you're going to walk to the front of this stage. Yeah. I was weeping. And at the end of his prayer, I sprinted. 
broke me. Absolutely broke me. And there was immediate change, immediate change in my life. That's my testimony. I think it was Ruth Graham who said, I don't know when it was that the sun came up, but I know it's shining. That's the reality. This is our message. So to to close this, if you're sitting in this room and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you want to be a part of a church that exudes these, I'm going to tell you, we're not perfect. But our goal is to be this. It is. Our goal is to be this. But if you're here and, and you've never accepted Christ, then please come find myself or James or Dave or, or, or someone because we want to tell you this is why we're doing this. If you're sitting here this morning and you're, you're not in a life group, today we're going to have group link. And that's going to be your opportunity to join into a life group and be a part of a community like this. And so James is going to come up in just a second. He's going to give you more information, but I'm going to pray for us as we go. So if you would, bow your heads. Father, God, we are so thankful for you. Lord, when Jesus ascended back into heaven, you didn't, you didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. We, we didn't have to just figure this thing out. Lord, you sent the Holy Spirit to live amongst believers to empower us to be able to do what we needed to do. Lord, as a church, as a people, as life groups, help us exude what a spirit-filled church should look like. Help us to continue to learn, to continue to love, to continue to worship, and continue to share the gospel. Lord, help it be part of who we are and not something we feel like we have to do. Lord, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know you, has never given their life to you, I pray that, that today that you move in their heart you transform them into a new creation and breathe life into them. We love you and forgive us when we fail you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys.